Hello and welcome back to Case by Case. My name is Helen Emery and I'm joined by Kyle Williams. Hello. Hello, Kyle. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> we have a excellent case for you today. We do. Fire away, Kyle. The case that I'm going to talk about today is a case of abdominal pain in a female patient. Now, me, I find sort of abdominal pain tricky at the best of times sometimes. And I guess when you add in the, the extra dimension that is abdominal pain in a female with all the extra anatomy in, in the same space and the pregnancy and all other scary stuff down there that can not only mimic general surgery complaints, but also be really scary when they go wrong. I think that can make it much more tricky sometimes. Absolutely. It's can be a bit of a minefield, can't it? Absolutely. Pretty much what we're saying is that, you know, the females are more complicated than the male, really. The case is a 19-year-old female who'd presented with about a 24-hour history of abdominal pain. So she woke the morning before not feeling quite right, but couldn't put a finger on it. So she went to the university and during her morning tutorial, she developed some abdominal pains. It was quite non-specific. She couldn't really tell me where it was or what it felt like. It was quite mild, it was intermittent, she felt a bit lethargic, and she went on to have two episodes of loose stool, but she was quite sensible. She thought, you know what, I'm a new student, I've been drinking heavily, I've been partying hard, I've not been eating very much, it's probably something to do with that. Um, so she went home, she got some Gaviscon, she went to bed, she drank plenty of fluids, and didn't really think much more than that really, she just thought she'd see how she went. Early hours of the next morning or so, she woke from her sleep with more severe pain so the pain was severe it was sharp she then vomited where was the pain again she found it really difficult to localize she just said it was sharp it was more severe and she thought it was sort of in the lower part of the abdomen this is an ectopic pregnancy isn't it oh yeah well you're trying to throw me off with the diarrhea and the alcohol indeed yeah i am trying to catch you out my money is on <laughs> ectopic pregnancy right now i'm just gonna put it out there Okay, so that really concerned her. So she phoned 111, who said, do you know what, go up to the hospital and just get an assessment. You're probably right, but you know, you just need somebody to sort of make sure you're okay. So that's what she did. By the time I got to see her, she was, for all intents and purposes, sort of 24 hours down the line. Still looked uncomfortable, and that was after, you know, triage doing my work for me again, popping a drip in, taking some blood, giving her some IV paracetamol. She looked uncomfortable. She was scoring a pain four, five out of ten. She was feeling pretty sorry for herself. Her vital signs were, were stable. She, you know, she had a, a pulse of about 104 and a normal blood pressure. And I thought that was probably in keeping with somebody that hadn't been drinking very much, that had vomited, had had some diarrhea. Her lactate was 1.3, I think, on, on the venous gas that triage had done. She wasn't tachycardic. 104 to me in a 19-year-old is probably more concerning but not excessively tachycardic no for someone that's having an ectopic not, not very high not very high so the examination tummy was nice and soft she had some very mild tenderness in the epigastrium mm -hmm. and to the left upper quadrant again i thought that was quite in keeping with a bit of a gastritis or dyspepsia secondary to alcohol perhaps just because of her heavy drinking but she was much more tender in the right lower quadrant oh yes she was Indeed she was. Yeah, so she was tender all over the right lower quadrant and in the right iliac fossa with beard of guarding, which was more concerning than, you know, the tenderness in, in the epigastrium. And did she have ongoing diarrhoea? No, she didn't have any further diarrhoea or vomiting. So I kind of didn't think sort of a, an infectious cause, like a gastroenteritis or a colitis or something like that was, was a sensible diagnosis. It would be unusual for a gastroenteritis to be causing this severe pain, surely, especially in the absence of diarrhoea, vomiting. Yeah, in short. 
She denied any urinary symptoms, so she didn't have any dysuria or polyuria or sort of urgency. She didn't have any any flank pain, so I didn't think urinary cause was, was any good. She didn't think a palinophritis or a renal colic was, again, a sensible diagnosis. When was her last period? So that's when it became a little bit more tricky in that she had a very irregular cycle that lasted sort of anywhere between three to eight weeks or so. And she said her last period was about six weeks ago. Oh. Made me a little bit more twitched, I guess. She denied any other abnormal vaginal discharge or, or bleeding in the semi-recent history. In a medical history of note was that she was a very well-controlled uh, asthmatic. The other thing that made me, I guess, a little bit twitched and was very important was that she had similar episodes of right lower quadrant pain in the past, although admittedly not as severe as this. And at that point, she saw the GP who diagnosed her with pelvic inflammatory disease, for which she had a course of antibiotics. And I think that was about 18 months ago. So that kind of was ringing some alarm bells as well, really. So she said previous PID. Previous PID. A risk factor for ectopic pregnancy. A risk factor for ectopic pregnancy. Couldn't make this stuff up, Kyle. (laughs) Okay, but let me come out of my ectopic pregnancy bubble. She's also got some epigastric tenderness, but her main tenderness is in the right iliac fossa. Yeah, right iliac fossa, right lower quadrant. She was sort of tender all across that right iliac fossa. Okay. So what about Rovsing? Rovsings? Rovsings? She was Rovsings positive, so given her a good palpation in the left iliac fossa, did cause her to have pain in the right iliac fossa. Okay. So that's lending us towards appendicitis. Yeah, perhaps, but lots of people have a Rovsings positive. But yeah, absolutely. So that kind of put appendicitis into the mix Was there any guarding or percussion tenderness or rebound? She was mildly guarding on palpation of the right lower quadrant. She wasn't very happy when she coughed. Uh, She didn't like that. So I guess that would mean that she has got some element of rebound tenderness. Yes. And what about gallstones? Gallstones, again, so she had a completely sort of soft, non-tender right upper quadrant. She was Murphy's negative. I couldn't feel a liver edge. Okay. So we could still go with gastritis. I think there's probably an element of gastritis there as well. But it doesn't really explain her right iliac fossa pain, does it? No, no. What about a pancreatitis? Pancreatitis, yeah, it's a good shout. Didn't feel like a pancreatitis to me in that it wasn't that kind of typical severe central epigastric pain that radiated through to the back, but I guess it had to be on the list. The main things for me was an ectopic pregnancy, an appendicitis, some sort of ovarian disease, an ovarian torsion. I think that's more common on the right. But again, usually the pain is really severe. You know, it's out of context with what you're thinking about, really. So it's usually really, really severe, really, really sudden. Often patients are inconsolable. She wasn't. I mean, she was uncomfortable, but she wasn't in excruciating pain. I've had a couple of embarrassing situations where I've referred to surgeons for an appendicitis and it's turned out to be a UTI. You said no urinary symptoms. No, she, she didn't describe any urinary symptoms. And I guess a, a fair few pyelonephritis turned out not to have cystitis symptoms, I suppose. But she didn't have any flank pain. We did a urinalysis and that was completely normal. So that kind of lowered my suspicion of a, of a urinary cause. We might have to come back to urine dip with no symptoms in another podcast. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah, another podcast in itself, isn't it? How did you decide which was the right one? We did a set of bloods. So, on the urinalysis, you're you're keeping me hanging a bit. Yes. Did yeah. you do a pregnancy Pre- test? I did, and it was negative. Oh. 
<laughs> Completely negative. Okay, so urine pregnancy test negative. Okay, fine. What bloods did you do? Liver, kidney, uh, inflammatory markers, so CRP, white cell. We've got a lady who has irregular periods, a history of PID, and she is six weeks since her last menstrual period. This may be controversial, but I would like a serum BTHCG. Did you do one? Well, I didn't do one, but triage, as I say, done my work for me and, and helpfully had put on a BTHCG onto the serum bloods. So my extensive look at the NICE guidance and the ARCOG guidance says a pregnancy test and sometimes they say urine or a serum sometimes they don't specify and however I think in a patient like this where your index of suspicion is so high and you've got irregular periods I don't think it can be harmful by doing a BTHCG what, what do you reckon? No I think you're right I guess if you're just looking to see if somebody's pregnant for x-ray it's reasonable to do a urine test I guess when ectopic is very high on the list it is prudent to do a serum test I'm not sure the sensitivity and things of urine pregnancy tests. Well, I have read that urine pregnancy tests are 96% sensitive as opposed to serum, which are 100%. However, I'm not sure how many weeks gestation and all of that to do with those. The way I get around it is that if it is an ectopic pregnancy, OBS and gynae will need a beta HCG to decide their management. So... I think if your index of suspicion is high, you really want to rule out pregnancy, then do a serum because if it is that, you need it anyway. That's very similar to my practice. Both urine and blood were normal. It's not an ectopic. Close, but no egg. (laughs) Literally, no egg. No egg, exactly. Yeah, there's a pun there. (laughs) That really wasn't wasn't meant. Fine, I've lost interest now. Sore loser. <laughs> I, I am a sore loser. I still had a patient to look after, so. Well, you just didn't tell her to go home after it wasn't an ectopic. No, no, she was she was very she was very sore, and I was feeling compassionate, so I thought I'd finish the job. The bloods came back, so the liver and kidney came back as normal. She had, I think, a CRP of about forty three, normal white cell. So I guess that kind of clouded the picture a little bit but i think 10 to 20 percent of appendicitis have a normal white cell count so although useful should be treated with a bit of caution but clinically you think appendicitis don't you as you say the bloods are fairly irrelevant because even if they'd been plumb normal you still have a patient that you think has got appendicitis and are going to treat them as such we were also very lucky in that this was early morning so we were able to get an ultrasound of the abdomen and pelvis Oh, interesting. Okay. Rather than straight for surgery? Yeah, I still wanted just to make sure there was no gynae pathology going on. We were lucky enough to get a slot in our ultrasound department and she had the ultrasound. How long did she have to wait for that? Not long, 15 minutes. We were really lucky. It was just as it was opening. How would that have changed if it was midnight? That would have been a discussion with the surgical registrar and it's kind of done much more clinically I guess or if there's a uh, element of doubt I guess they would do sort of CT imaging perhaps or I think she was probably a candidate to watch and wait she wasn't peritonitic she wasn't septic she was uncomfortable but she'd only had some IV paracetamol so we had a bit of wiggle room for for analgesia so I guess we could have got the surgical registrar involved for a clinical examination That's really interesting because ultrasound and CT scanning is coming more and more into vogue with appendicitis. 
the guidance still says straight for theatre for appendicectomy. But I guess if your investigations aren't going to delay your definitive treatment, or in fact, you you're not sure what it is. So I think if you feel a mass in the appendix, then you have to get an ultrasound or a CT, then I think it's a good idea. Looking at the literature, there is some work looking at early management of appendicitis and whether watch and wait or treatment with IV antibiotics is of use in uncomplicated appendicitis. So I think there's a paper in 16 from Salin et al. in the British Journal of Surgery who showed that actually intravenous antibiotics can be of benefit in uncomplicated appendicitis patients. Now you are opening up a can of worms with your antibiotics. Absolutely. It's about getting early intervention in the patients you suspect having appendicitis with a decision-making surgeon and allowing them to make decisions about definitive treatment. I think you're right. There is work going on to look at the use of antibiotics instead of surgery and appendicitis. But at the moment, that's not what we're doing. Is it? In the UK, we're still going for an appendicectomy. Yeah. But the ultrasound you know, didn't delay anything. You got it really very rapidly. So what did it show? Normal gynecological anatomy, but a moderately edematous and inflamed appendix. What a surprise. So before we got to this point, you had no scoring system or anything like that. You love a little scoring system, you do. Funny you should mention that. I did use the Alvarado score. Alvarado. And again, there's some questions over how useful the Alvarado score is, but it is a commonly used scoring system to assess or evaluate patients for an appendicitis. It is helpful in risk stratification. And basically, it's the mnemonic, so I love a mnemonic too, you know that. Oh, is it actually going to be a good mnemonic this week? Yeah, it makes sense this week. And the mnemonic is mantrals. Okay. M-A-N-T-R-E-L-S, mantrals. And that stands for migration of pain, anorexia, nausea, tenderness in the right lower quadrant, rebound pain, elevated temperature, leukocytosis, and a shift of white blood cell count to the left. Wow, so all those letters actually corresponded to the word you would use. (laughs) They do this week. I've still got a pounding headache. (laughs) From the pounding mnemonic. Yeah, yes. This is more useful at ruling out an appendicitis. An Alvarado score of less than four almost certainly rules out an appendicitis. And a score greater than seven almost rules it in. But you've obviously got that grey area in between. So I guess counting hers up, she would be one for migration to pain, one for anorexia, one for nausea, two for tenderness in the right lower quadrant, one for rebound pain. She had a temperature of 37.8, just about raised... So that would make a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. That would almost be a rule in. You fudged it so that she's ruled in. 37 <laughs> Not technically spiking. Not spiking, but technically elevated, isn't it? I'll go along with it. So we've got a raised Alvarado score, suggestive appendicitis. We've got an inflamed and edematous appendix on ultrasound with the rest of the abdomen being normal and somebody that's got pain and a clinical history suggestive of appendicitis. We made the diagnosis of appendicitis. We spoke to the surgical registrar. And did she go on to have an appendicectomy? She did. So she had a delayed appendicectomy that afternoon. Okay, great. And was discharged, I think, two days later. Perfect. Should we talk about appendicitis then? We probably should. Got an appendix, opens directly onto the cecum. Doesn't really do much at all, except seems to get clogged up and infected and causes appendicitis. The Royal College of Surgeons say there's about 40,000 cases a year. Blimey. 
it is a disease of the young. So I think the peak instance in the 20s to 30s, but it can happen at any age, I suppose. What's the pathophysiology then? Inflammation and or obstructions, despite it being such a common disease, I think the etiology is sort of poorly understood. But I think appendiceal obstruction is the main cause. So you're trying to say that poo gets stuck in there and it becomes inflamed and infected? Fecalist. You like posh words. I like posh words. Okay, so once the poo or the fecalith is in there, what happens? The lumen fills with sort of mucus and distends. One of the earliest changes is a mucosal ulceration, which is probably caused by that increased pressure. Then inflammation basically causes pressure of the appendix to increase, includes the small vessels, causes mucus to pool, essentially causing bacteria to grow. I guess if the mucus is pooling, the lymph isn't flowing. Bacteria gets stuck goes into overdrive and then forms abscesses, abscesses, abscessi. <laughs> abscessi, definitely abscessi. Which then causes further inflammation and necrosis. And at that point is at risk of perforation and then peritonitis. And to be fair, it doesn't take that long to do that, does it? Usually from onset of vague abdominal pain to significant pain and tenderness, I think it's usually within about 24 hours, but can be quicker. I've seen it quicker. Grim. Grim. Grim, but solvable. The recovery and looking at the literature, the outcomes are really good. And obviously, if the appendix is not there anymore, it can't cause problems. Okay, so we said that it was more common in the young, but there are groups of patients that we need to be very careful about because I think actually only 50% of people have classic presentation. At risk of atypical presentations are the older population and the young population. The very young, the children. And I guess the other thing that, often causes a bit of difficulty are pregnant ladies opposed to pregnant men pregnant men their pain is always in the right lower quadrant (laughs) (laughs) that's renal stone isn't it pregnant man (laughs) those pregnant ladies i guess are a other source of atypical presentation they're more likely to have a right upper quadrant pain aren't they yes pregnantness pushes everything upwards And even in our non-pregnant men or women, we can have different anatomies of the appendix, which may mean that the pain is in different places. So a retrocecal, a preileal, a subcecal, a long appendix with tip inflammation at the lower quadrant. You may have appendicitis that is giving you pain elsewhere. Yeah, and that makes it really difficult, I suppose. Not in your case, ultrasound and appendicectomy. Thankfully, classic case. Classic. I can do classic. (laughs) In summary then we have a 19 year old female who's come in with a 24 hour history of grumbling abdominal pain that seems to have settled into her right iliac fossa. She was slightly tacky on arrival but otherwise her obs are fine. Urine pregnancy test negative, serum pregnancy test negative so we're no longer thinking that it's an ectopic pregnancy. Bloods, she's got mild inflammatory marker rays and she managed to have an ultrasound that showed no gynae causes but an enlarged appendix diagnosed with appendicitis and had an appendicectomy boom okay thanks very much for listening everybody you can check us out on twitter or facebook we'd love to know what you think Uh, you can suggest cases you can check out our website www.casebycasepodcast.co.uk where we will post links we'll post the case and you can leave any comments But I think for now, that's a wrap. I think we did forget something. What did we forget? Gestalt. Ah! We had a mission aim in our last one that we were going to get gestalt into everything and we failed. Well, my gestalt has failed me in this case. 
Boom. Boom. <laughs> See you later. Bye. <laughs> Bye.